Well, good morning, everybody. And uh, I don't know if that was a snow apocalypse, but man, four inches felt like a lot more since we haven't had much before that. So thank you for being here and digging yourselves out and, and going through or driving over the top of the snow. I debated that. Like, am I going to shovel it or am I going to just drive over it? Right? I don't know if the rest of you debated that, but I had that debate this morning uh, whether or not I wanted to get up that early to do that. I decided to shovel because I knew when I got home to see those tracks that I had left is just going to drive me nuts, right? Anybody else with me? All right, so thank you for being here. So we are in this series right now, a seven-week series called Puzzled by the Bible. Now, the reason we're doing this series is because it's very simple. We sometimes, as human beings, we approach the Bible as kind of like a puzzle, we're puzzled by it. A lot of people I know, at least most people I know, they're kind of puzzled by at least certain aspects of the Bible, maybe a lot of the Bible. It's very puzzling. But we also treat the Bible like a puzzle because we kind of know bits and pieces of the puzzle, if you will. We, we can quote a scripture verse here and there, or we have heard some of the stories in the Bible, but we don't know the one big story of the Bible. And so this series is all about taking the one big story of the Bible, and helping us to understand what is God saying from cover to cover. Now, we're doing that by looking at stories in the Bible. But how do we understand the one big story of the Bible? That's what this series is all about, Puzzled by the Bible. So, what I want to do is, is kind of remind you, and this, we want to give credit where his credit's due, this series originally was given by a guy named Pastor Kevin Myers at a church called Twelve Stone. And this was like 10 years ago. So it's an older series. We've kind of known about this. I've known about this series for a very long time, but didn't feel like it was the right time for God, you know, for God to have us unveil it. But we felt like today and this, these next few weeks are the time to unveil this. So that's where this came from. And uh, what I want to do is I want to review what we've talked about because we need to know where we are in order to know where we're going. All right? So this is going to be the way too fast version if you don't understand all this, go two weeks before this, where Pastor Chris kind of explained all this in great detail. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you the whoo, fire hose version, drink really fast. If we're not quite sure, go back two weeks, then you'll understand a little bit more, all right? So the Bible is made up of two parts. The first part is the Old Testament. The Old Testament is very simply, we could call it also the Old Covenant, the Old Promise, the Old Contract. It was a contract between God and Abraham specifically, but Abraham and people. Okay, we're going to talk about that a little bit more. We talked about that in great detail last week. Then the second part of the Bible is called the New Testament. This is the new promise, the new contract, the new agreement between God and people brought to us by Jesus. Now, the Old Testament have five events that ascend toward the pinnacle, which is Jesus. And the New Testament has five events that descend away from Jesus, but they are actually parallels to the events in the Old Testament. Okay, let me walk through them really quickly. So the first event in the Old Testament is God and righteous people in paradise. God creates the earth. It's perfect. There's no Satan. There's no sin. There's no death. There's no problems. It is a perfect world, and he puts the first man and the first woman into this perfect world, Adam and Eve. God and righteous people in paradise. But then things get messed up because the second event is Satan and sin enter 
Satan tempts Adam and Eve. They give in and Satan and sin enter our world and kind of mess it up, which is why the Packers lost last night. I'm just kidding. I don't know if that had anything to do with sin. Tanya, I think you're right. It had everything to do with special teams. <laughs> if you watch the same game I did, I, that's true. <laughs> no, but Satan and sin enter and mess up our world. Everything bad that you can think of in your life came from Satan and sin. Everything that is bad came because of that event. Then it gets to the third event. The third event is the world is judged and destroyed. Because humanity got so bad early on, God decides I have to destroy everything. And so he brings a global flood. This is Noah and the ark, the story of Noah and the ark. And the only people that survive is Noah and his family. All right? That's the third event. The fourth event is a one-world government. This is what we know as the Tower of Babel story. This is where people come together and unify to become God. Obviously, we can't become God, and we shouldn't try to become God, but that's what the people are trying to do. And so God scatters them over the earth. And then that brings us to the fifth and final event that basically goes through the rest of the Old Testament. The Old Covenant is established. These are the promises that God gave to Abraham specifically. And if you remember, I talked about these in great detail last week. God gave Abraham basically three huge promises. He said, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to give you a great land, the promised land. And through you is going to come a great Messiah. Through your family line is going to become a great Messiah. His name is Jesus. Now, he didn't tell Abraham that, but he knew a great Messiah is coming. All right? And so the old covenant is established. Then it leads us to the pinnacle, the top point, which is Jesus. This is the arrival of Jesus, and it establishes the second part of God's story. The second part of God's story, again, in descending Ori, it completely parallels with all the, the events in the Old Testament. So the new covenant is established. This is because of Jesus. Now we no longer have to kill animals to uh, sacrifice and atone for our sins. Jesus did that. So everything changes. Everything hinges on Jesus. And so we have the new covenant is established. The next event, which God says will happen, it has not happened yet, is a one world government. Now, a few generations ago, that would have seemed crazy that we were going to have a one world government. But not so crazy now, is it? The way that our world is headed the way that we're trying to make the world as small a place as possible, this is a very possible thing. Now, whether or not it's going to happen anytime soon, we don't know. It's something that's going to happen in the future. There's going to be a one-world government, and we are going to know that that is leading to the final three events. Now, before I go to the last three events, we need to know where we are, right? You go to the Disney park and you need to figure out how to get to the biggest roller coaster. You need, in order to get to where you need to go, you need to know where you are, okay? Where are we at in this story? Well, I've already showed you, if you put the dot there, there it is, we are in between the new covenant and the one world government. The one world government has not happened yet. The new covenant has been established with Jesus. We've been there, by the way, for 2,000 years already. So we've been on that dot for a while, okay? So we have these next three events after the one world government that happened. God says, this is what's going to happen. The next event is the world is going to be judged and destroyed again. The first time it was by flood. The second time, the Bible's very clear, it's going to be by fire. 
We don't exactly know what that means. We just know it's by fire. The fourth event, Satan and sin exit. Guys, this is a good day. This is when everything bad in our life ends. Satan and sin gets kicked into hell. Literally, that's what the Bible says. God will cast them into hell for good. Satan and sin exit, that's a good day. And then the last event is God and redeemed people in paradise. Anybody who follows, anybody who has accepted Jesus will now live in eternity with God forever. So that is the way too fast version of how God's story is coming to fruition. Again, if you want the more detailed version, two weeks ago you can get to get that. Now, here's what that story settles for us. And this is really, really important. Why does God tell that one big story? Well, he tells it for a lot of reasons, but there are three things that that story makes very, very clear. And those three things are this. God is without equal. Nothing reaches the status of God. Nothing can reach him. He is without equal. The second thing that it establishes is sin leads to death. We don't like to say that. We don't like to talk about that. But sin leads to death. And then the third thing that it settles is when it comes to sin, we are to blame for it, not God. Again, we don't like that one. But it was not God's fault for sin. It was ours. And so these three things are established. Now, if we go back to that graphic, I want to kind of go back to the time before Jesus but sometime after Abraham, okay? So we're going to go after Abraham's been established, the promises, you're going to be a great nation, you're going to get a great land, and a great Messiah is going to come. But I want to go just a few years, a few generations after that, right? So Abraham's long gone, and his great-grandson, Joseph, and the Israelites, the Hebrews, they are now living in Egypt because of a major global famine. Okay? And things are going really well living in Egypt for a while. In fact, Joseph, if you remember the story, he is second in command under Pharaoh himself. So the Hebrew people, things are going really well in the, in the nation of Egypt. But then, several generations later, things turn a little bit sideways. The Egyptians start to fear the Israelites. They start to get scared. And you know why? Because the Israelites, they start multiplying like crazy. All right? In other words, you know what I mean? They have babies. Right? And, they, and the Israelite nation, they go from like this, this family that's pretty good size to this, to this, okay, now it's more than a family. Now it's like, oh, now they're a nation within a nation. And the Egyptians are looking at this and they're going, man, the Israelites are going to take over if we don't do something about this. And so you know what the Egyptians do? They decide to make the Israelites slaves. They say, we're going to work them to death so that some of them will die, and then we won't have to deal with them. That's literally what the Egyptians did. All of this, by the way, you can read in the book of Exodus. And so you look in that, and that's all kind of goes and goes and goes, and eventually another guy comes on the scene. You guys have probably heard of him. You've seen him played by Charlton Heston with a hairy chest. His name is Moses. Moses arrives on the scene, and Moses is the one chosen by God to free the Israelites, the Hebrew people, from slavery in Egypt and leads them to the promised land. So the second promise is fulfilled. They're given this great land. Now, there are three things that I want to talk about today 
within that story around Moses and the Egyptians and the slavery and all that stuff, three things that we learn that we should never do if we are going to be followers of Jesus. If we're going to be followers of God, three things that we should never do if we're going to be followers of God. Are you guys ready for this? Are you glad you shoveled for this? We'll see. Three things that you should never do if you want to follow God. The first one is this. Never confuse being in charge with being in control. This is a hard one to accept for us as human beings. This is the truth. Because I don't know about you, but I like to be in control. Anybody else like to be in control? Uh, I mean, like when I'm out of control, I, I, I'm not a fan. But God wants us to remember from this story that being in charge, he has placed us in charge of life, but he has not made us in control of life. We do not get to control the outcomes of life. Let me give you some examples. Uh, those of you that are parents in here, when you have a babysitter come over to watch your kids, one thing that you know is you've placed them in charge, but let's be honest, they are not in control. In a literal sense, but also in terms of your children's lives, right? Like, you know, the babysitter is in charge, but the babysitter is not necessarily in control. You, as the parents, are in control of their life, right? Parents, same thing for you. When you have children, one thing that you learn, one thing that we learn very quickly, my goodness, I learned this very quickly as a parent, you are in charge of your kids, but you are not in control of them. How many of you in here chose the personality of your child? I know you didn't because you didn't get a choice. They just came out as they came out. Hey, welcome to it. Now, you had a little bit to do with that <laughs> because of how God operates, right? But you do not control their personality. You do not control their behavior. Now, you can react to it, but you can't control it. You're in charge, but you're not in control. An employee, the same way, right? An employee can be in charge of certain things in the company, but the owner is in control. An owner may be in control of a company, but the owner is only in charge of the company because the laws of the community and the county and the country control the owner and how they can run the company. Right? An athlete... An athlete may be in charge of what he or she can do on the field or on the court, but they are not in control. Who is the refs and the umpires and the rules of the game? One thing that we need to remember from God is that although we have been placed in charge of our life, that doesn't mean we're in control of it. This is a really important distinction that we need to remember in fact, Moses learned this right from the very beginning when he started talking to God. Do you guys remember when Moses met God? Do you remember that story? It's called Moses in the burning bush. It's a weird story, to be honest. Moses is out tending his flocks and he sees this glow on the mountain. And so he goes up to kind of check it out. And he sees this bush that's burning, but it's not burning up. It's on fire, but it's not being consumed. And all of a sudden, God's voice speaks to him from the bush. By the way, just curious, anybody else in here had one of those experiences? I haven't either. It's weird, but that's what Moses' experience was, his first experience with God. 
And so God, I want to share what God says. He kind of sets this standard with Moses that Moses, I'm going to put you in charge of freeing the Israelites from Egypt. But just make no mistake, you're not going to be in control. Listen to what God says from the burning bush, the first moment. Exodus 3, 5, and 6. God says to Moses, do not come any closer, the Lord warned. Take off your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Remember, one big story. God is telling one big story. Moses is now a part of it. When Moses heard this, he covered his face because he was afraid to look at God. Which, by the way, when we are presented face to face with holy God, Moses' response is correct. It is all about sacrifice. It is all about surrender. It is all about adhering to holy God. In other words, what was God doing? God was letting Moses know, hey, I am about to call you to do something crazy, and I'm going to put you in charge of it, but make no mistake, I am still holy, and therefore, I need you to remove your sandals. There's going to be some boundaries. And this is not God on an ego trip. This is simply God establishing the fact that I am holy, therefore you will not be able to survive because I am so holy. So take off your sandals. You have to respect who I am, God says. Now, let's be honest for a second. We sometimes mix this up, being in charge with being in control. Can I be honest? I mix this up. All the time. (laughs) I mix it up all the time. I mess up all the time. But the truth is, sometimes we mix this up, and, and what we do is life happens, something happens, and we start to realize when something happens that we didn't want to have happen in our life, we start to realize, oh my goodness, I'm in charge of my life, but I'm not in control of anything. And what happens is one of two things can happen when that happens to us as human beings. And I know I relate to both of these because I've done both of these. I've had both of these problems. The first option that we take is we decide that we're going to prove to God that we can be in control. Anybody ever do that? When, when, I, have, when I have to wrangle with my kids, oh man, sometimes I just have to teach them, listen, I'm in control here. When in reality, I'm not. I try, but I'm not. And God wants us to understand that when we think we're in charge and in control, sometimes we try to take the steering wheel from God. There's a song running through my head, right? Jesus, take the wheel. I'm serious. I didn't think about that while I was writing this entire message. It just came to me now. And I'm not sure if I'm thankful for it, Lord. Seriously. (laughs) Of all the songs, you've got to be kidding me. But we do the opposite of that song. What we do is we say, God, I'm taking the wheel. Take the back seat. I think I've got this. And then God, there's something else happens in life. And we realize we're not in control. And we say, no, 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 I've got this. No, you don't. You're in charge, but you're not in control. You, you can grab the steering wheel, but God says, I'm going to tell you where to drive and how to drive. But the other thing that we do, the other side of that coin, is sometimes the problem, and this is the problem that I tend to have, 
I tend to be a, I can't stand people like this, but I tend to do this myself. I throw pity parties for me. Anybody else do that? I throw pity parties for myself. I'm like, oh, I deserved better. I'm better. I'm better. than I, I deserve more than that. Right? And so when, I, when something doesn't go my way in life, what I do is instead of fighting with God because that's not my personality, I know better, what I'll do is like, you know what? Fine, God. Not only am I not in charge or not in control, I'm not going to be in charge either. I'm not even going to be in the vehicle. You can drive and you can go wherever you want. I'm just going to sit in the back seat. I'm going to sleep. I'm out. Pity party. This. Anybody ever seen that people do this? But they don't do this because if we did this, we'd look like jerks as adults. You know what we do? We do it inside and it shows in our face. And we're like, yeah, sure, we'll do that. I'm not sure you're really with me. No, I'm totally with you. Stupid. Right? And we throw a pity party and we say, God, if I'm not going to be in control, I'm not going to be in charge either. See you later. Can I be honest with you? We've done a lot of that in the pandemic. We've, we've taken ourselves out of the front seat. We put COVID there. We took ourselves out of the front seat. We put masks there. We put, ours, we put a vaccine there. We put, our, we put a politician there. We took it out. We put social media there. We took it out. And we, I watched YouTube videos. Therefore, I, I'm an expert. And since, God, you're not going to let me believe that and do that and control that, then I'm just going to sit in the back seat. Sure, you can do better. Go for it, God. I give up. I relinquish being in control and in charge. I'm out. I've seen a lot of that over the pandemic. I've done some of that in the pandemic. Truly. The truth is that God wants to remind us that we are in charge. He has given us free will. He's given us the option to choose how to live our life because he loves us, but he has to make sure we understand that doesn't mean we are in control of it. He sets the boundaries. He sets the rules for our life, for this world. Moses learned this, but did you know that Pharaoh had to learn this? You guys remember the story of Pharaoh? So you remember what I said, Pharaoh started to get a little bit worried. The Egyptians started to get worried about the Israelites in Egypt. And so they made them slaves. But before that, do you remember this, what happened? The Pharaoh was really, really cruel to the Israelites even before and during this whole season where they were making them slaves. You remember what he did? So uh, let me tell you, the kind of give you the short version of the story. So the Pharaoh starts to get worried about the Israelites multiplying, and they're really, you know, uh, fertile and all that stuff. They're, they're just doing great. They're multiplying like crazy, and wow, they're, they're growing into, we think, we don't know for sure, but they're probably the Israelites, the Hebrew people, probably million, uh, numbered around a million people at the time of Moses. In other words, the Egyptians were getting worried that they were going to take over, just on sheer numbers. And so Pharaoh says, I need to control this. He knew he was in charge of Egypt. He thought he was in control. He was wrong. And so the, the thing that he does is he goes to the Hebrew midwives and he says to the Hebrew midwives something unthinkable. He says, here's what I want you to do. When you're helping them to give birth, if you see the baby is a girl, let her live. But if it's a boy, we want you to kill him. 
Every boy that is born, we want you to kill him. We'll control the population, Pharaoh says. I'm going to control this. But you know what the Hebrew midwives did? I love what Exodus 1.17 says. Listen to what it says the Hebrew midwives did. But because the midwives feared God, oh, that's a good response. Because they feared God, they refused to obey the king's orders. They allowed the boys to live too. In other words, they went against one of the most powerful people on the planet in that time in history, the Pharaoh of Egypt, because they feared God, they did not fear Pharaoh. If the President of the United States came and requested and asked you, asked you to do something, and you knew he had the power to throw you into prison or to do something else to your family that, that you wouldn't want to have happen, would you be fearful of the person in front of you or God who controls. The Hebrew midwives decided not to do this. So, you know what Pharaoh did? Pharaoh didn't get the message from God, and so Pharaoh decided to take it one step further. He issues a command, a decree, an edict to all of the Egyptian people, and he said, anybody who ever sees a Hebrew boy, we want you to throw him into the Nile River. Kill him. I'm not making this stuff up. You can read all this in Exodus chapter 1. This actually happened. Can you imagine? The Hebrew people, every son, every single boy that exists in the Israelite nation, in the Hebrew nation, in Egypt, in that season, were being murdered by the Egyptians. But catch this. It seems like the Pharaoh is in control and in charge. But God knows better. Do you remember the story of Moses? Remember his family? In order to save his life, they put him in a basket in the Nile River, right? And, and he floats down the Nile River. And the only boy who survives this season of genocide, the only boy who survives is this little boy named Moses, the very one who is actually going to be the undoing of the Egyptians. The only boy who survives. There is no way that Pharaoh is in charge. By the way, do you remember this part of the story? Who saved Moses from the river? Do you remember that? Who saved, who saved Moses from the river? Pharaoh's daughter. <laughs> this is almost hilarious. Pharaoh is trying to control his nation and control his life by killing all the Hebrew boys. And the only one who survives is Moses. And guess who saves him? His own daughter. Ah! Moses is raised by the royal family in the royal palace in Egypt. He grows up. He leaves. And he comes back when God tells him to. And he frees the Israelites, the Hebrew people, from slavery. The very thing that... Pharaoh was trying to stop. God said, watch what I'm going to do. Your own daughter's going to raise the person who's going to save the people. How crazy is that? How not in control are we? So the first thing we need to understand is we need to make sure we always never confuse being in charge of your life with being in control of your life. God is the one who sets the boundaries and the rules. But God has given us the choice whether or not we're going to live within those. So we're in charge. We're just not in control. 
All right, let's go to the second one. Now, before I give you the second statement, uh, let me just show you a picture. So uh, this is a picture of my basketball hoop uh, in our driveway. Uh, obviously, you can tell it was before the snow came, right? Uh, one of the, one of the thing, favorite things of our family is to go out and shoot baskets together. I love going out to shoot baskets with my, with my kids, my three kids, some of the neighborhood kids. Sometimes they'll come over. Uh, my wife, Laura, a lot of people don't know this. She likes to play basketball. And so we love to just go out and shoot baskets, you know, play horse, play pig, uh, lightning, or play an actual basketball game. We love to just go shoot around. But let me just tell you one of my favorite things about this basketball hoop I don't know if you notice the kind of basketball hoop that it is, but on the back there's a little lever, which means you can adjust it. You know why that's cool? Because then my kids can dunk on the basketball hoop. Okay, let's be honest. I think it's cool because then I can dunk on the basketball hoop. Because everybody already knows this, but I'm 5'8 on a really good day. On a bad day, maybe less, right? The truth is I have never and will never be able to dunk a basketball on an actual hoop. A 10-foot hoop is not something that I can dunk. I cannot do a slam dunk. I've never been able to. I never will be able to. Trust me, I've tried. And it is hilariously sad and pathetic. Right? But the truth is that I can lower that rim about a foot, and I can, I can dunk pretty well. I can lower it even another foot, and my kids can even dunk. But here's the truth. If I lower the rim, it's not a true slam dunk. Because I don't think that they're going to let me change the rim if I'm playing in a real game. In other words, the standard has to stay the same. And it brings us to the second thing, the never statement that we need to realize. Never lower God's standard. Never lower God's standard. God has set a standard of sin and a standard of boundaries in our life that we need to follow. But the truth is, sometimes we read God's word and we're like, ah, it seems like God really meant that most of the time we need to follow that, but sometimes it's okay. I've heard people say this about lying, by the way. Well, sometimes, like, I don't want to hurt my wife's feelings, so it's okay to lie to her. I've heard that. I've seen a commercial made on that. The Twix moment thing. Hey, how does this dress make me look? We like, as human beings, to lower the standard. Why? Because it makes us feel good, because then we feel like we can dunk. But the truth is, we have to be honest, it's not a real dunk. We've lowered the standard. We lowered the bar. And it's not God's standard anymore. It's ours. So great that you can reach that standard, but that's not God's standard. Holiness is God's standard. In fact, Moses and the Israelites, when they were freed from slavery and Moses led them across the Red Sea and they get into the wilderness and then eventually they're getting ready, you know, to, God's getting them ready to go into the promised land. Listen to what God reminds the people about himself. This is in Exodus chapter 19, 5 and 6. God says, now if you will obey me and keep my covenant, in other words, don't lower the rim. Did you catch that? 
Don't lower the rim. If you keep the covenant and the commandments that I've given to you, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on earth, for all the earth belongs to me. And you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. In other words, God is saying the standard is to be holy as I am holy, God says. God says, I'm holy and I want you to be holy. Now, to be honest, I'm guessing what some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking, that's not even a 10-foot rim. Being holy like God? Like I'm supposed to be like God? I'm supposed to be as holy as God is? That's not a 10-foot rim. That's like a 100-foot rim. There's no way we can reach that standard. And you're right. There isn't. There's no way you can do it on your own. It's impossible. But that is the standard. In fact, let me give you a couple of other examples that say that is the standard. Leviticus 11.45. I don't know about you, but it's been a long time since I've quoted Leviticus. It's a good book, but listen to what it says. For I, the Lord, am the one who brought you up from the land of Egypt, that I might be your God. Therefore, you must be holy because I am holy. In other words, God says, I'm the standard. You need to hit that. That's the standard for you to hit. I'm holy, therefore I want you to be holy. 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16. So it didn't change with Jesus. The New Testament says the same thing. Listen to what Peter says. Remember, Peter spent a ton of time with Jesus. He knows Jesus better than just about anybody. Listen to what he says. He says, don't slip back into your old ways of living. Don't lower the bar. Don't bring the hoop down. To satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then, but now... You must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say you must be holy because I am holy. The standard never dropped with Jesus. It was just fulfilled. So why would I make such a big deal about never lower the bar? Because here's the truth. I think a lot of us in here know this. We just don't like to say it out loud. There are a lot of people and a lot of churches who have lowered the bar to make it safer and easier for them to follow God. God's holy standard is here. They've brought it down to here so that they can be culturally acceptable. You lower the bar... You lower the hoop, it's not a dunk. It's your standard, it's not God's. Glad you can dunk the ball. Can, can I be honest? It feels good when I dunk the ball. I'm like, yeah! And then if you pan back and you realize I just did it on an eight foot, woo! You go, wow, good job. That was pathetic. And it saddens God's heart when we lower the bar and say, we hit the standard. And God says, no, you didn't. The standard is way out of your reach. There's no way you can hit it, which is, by the way, why I brought Jesus. You know what we're going to do for the next two weeks, next week and the week after? We're going to spend some serious time talking about the sacrificial system. Ooh, who wants to shovel snow for that one? But seriously, if we don't understand the Old Testament sacrificial system, we do not understand why in the world Jesus did what he did. There's no way we can understand it. So for the next two weeks, we're going to talk about 
the fact that we cannot reach the standard on our own, but God gave us the only way to be able to dunk the basketball, spiritually speaking. And we're going to talk about that. All right, so we need to move on. Third never statement is this. Never underestimate God's favor. It's why the first two never statements are so powerful and so important. Never confuse that God is the one that's in control, even though you're the one that's in charge. And then never lower God's standard. Why? Because God wants to do something with you and in your life. He wants to give you his favor. He truly does. He wants to bless you like crazy. He wants to pour out his love and his power on your life and in your life, but he won't do it, he can't do it, if you are lowering the bar or forgetting that he is in control, you're just in charge. He will not pour out his favor on you if that happens. And I don't know about you, but man, we want God's favor. The Israelites experienced God's favor, didn't they? They became a great nation. They were given a great land, and through them came a great Messiah. All the promises came true. Why? Because God's favor was on them. Let me give you an example of this, a really practical one from our church. Uh, So early on in the history of Northridge, uh, when Laura and I uh, had just moved here, we had just named the church Northridge Church, and that's a whole other story. I won't get into that today, but we just named it, and we had just started Uh, our midweek children's ministry, our Wednesday night children's ministry. Well, several months before that, uh, there's this guy named Craig Raymond who came with us to help start Northridge Church, to plant it. And and Craig Raymond, I, I gave him all these different tasks. Well, one of the main tasks that I gave to Craig was, Craig, all we have are two vocalists and somebody to play keyboard, Rini, Susanna, played today. You did an awesome job, by the way. But Rini was, was our only keyboardist. Our only, so we had a keyboard player, and we had two vocalists. That's all we had for a worship team. And so I said, Craig, I need you to recruit, find people to play in the worship band. He's like, okay, I got this. This was several months before we even started Northridge Kids. Well, we got to starting Northridge Kids, and people got excited about the church, and like, hey, are you guys ever going to be like a normal church and have a Sunday morning service? And we said, yeah, as long as you'll come. Like, will you come? Absolutely. Okay, we'll do it. And so we started planning the very first preview service, which is in November 2011. November 2011 was our first preview service ever. Okay? And so Craig comes to me. This is several weeks out, maybe even two months out, uh, maybe a month and a half. And he says, Brent, I don't know what to tell you. I've been praying. I've been talking to people. I've been making calls. I have nobody. We still have two vocalists and the keyboard player. <laughs> Who's your mom? <laughs> Woohoo! Right? He's like, in other words, I've, I've got nothing. <laughs> still. Yay! <laughs> and so I'm like, all right, Craig, no problem. God's got this. It's okay. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm being the strong lead pastor, right? No problem. God's going to show up. Woo! Right? And, and, and in the back of my mind, I'm not freaking out, but I'm just like, Craig, what are you doing, dude? You know? But he said, but I have this idea. I, th- I think, I don't know. I, I don't know what else to do. And so I thought I would go drive down to Madison and I'd go to all the music stores and I'd look at the little boards where people kind of put their name and their numbers if they want to play in a band. And I thought I'd just look at some of those people, see if anybody's from Wanakee, and I'll give them a call if there's anybody. And I was like, 
yeah, it's a great idea. And so he drives around. He starts going to all these music stores. And he goes to this one music store, and he looks on the board where they have these names of people that want to play bass or they want to play guitar, they want to play drums or whatever in different bands. And they have their name and their number and where they're from, you know, where they live or whatever. And he's looking at this board, and he's like, eh, everybody lives in Madison or far away. And he's like, man, it doesn't, doesn't, look like, doesn't look like there's anybody there. And so he starts walking out. And then God very clearly tells Craig, go back in and look at the board again. Not an audible voice. Craig, thou shalt walk back and look at thy board. No. I don't think it was audible. I don't, I don't know. I didn't ask Craig. But it, it, Craig, it was just very clear, Craig, I can't walk out the door. I need to go back and look at the board. I've had God do this to me too. And I'm like, what? Why? I just, I, okay. So he goes back and he looks at the board. And he realizes that there was a piece of paper that he missed. It was covered up by the other papers. And he lifts it up. And there's a high school student in Wanakee that wants to drum for a band. And it has his phone number. And Craig's like, okay. So he calls him up. And he says, so this is probably not what you were thinking. (laughs) Oh, man, not what he was thinking. And he calls this high school kid. And he says, so this is what we're doing. We're a new church. We're starting a church band. And we wanted to see if you'd be willing to drum. And, and so thankfully, this guy was kind of game, you know, whatever. And so, so he agrees. And so uh, Craig and Laura and Rini, they go over to play with this high school student in his basement at his house. Right? No, no joke. Right? And, and, and yes, his parents thought this was a little weird. Okay? No doubt. Uh, side note, this is funny. Side note. The father actually drove and followed his son to Culver's when Craig and he met because he's like, totally, this is not right. <laughs> I probably would have done the same thing. This is weird, right? And so they go into the house and they're playing and they're kind of run through the songs, all stuff. And then the dad walks down. Some, a lot of you in here would know him. His name is Joe. And he walks down and he's been listening to the band. And then he finally asks in between the songs, he says, hey, I noticed that you don't have anybody playing guitar. Do you need somebody to play guitar? I'm like, yes. He says, well, I play guitar. Turns out he's phenomenal, really good. And he says, okay, and they play together like, okay, <laughs> this is starting to come together. And you know what he says? Hey, I know somebody who plays bass. Dan Polly. Sure, yeah, absolutely. We, now, we have a ba- now we have a guitar and a bass and a drummer. Are you kidding me? I kid you not. This high school student only played for us that one time. It was the only time. But you know what happened? God then, from there, brought in Ted, who drummed this morning, still drumming with us to this day. Brought in Kurt Quickle. He was not playing today, but you guys have seen him many times. Our entire worship team recruited from one piece of paper in a music store where Craig said, I don't know. I'm just going to walk in. I think that's what God wants me to do. Can I just tell you, I could, I, could, I could grab a chair and sit down, and I could tell you story after story after story after story of why this church exists and has very little, I'm serious about this, it has very little to do with me. I have been placed in charge, but I am not in control. 
Trust me when I tell you, you want God's favor in your life. Because he will do things that you've never believed could happen. So the question I have for you is this. Do you want God's favor in your life? I'm not asking if you think you can achieve it. I'm not asking if you think you can spiritually dunk the basketball, that you can hold the standard of God, that you can reach for the holiness of God, and that you can be holy like God is holy. I'm not asking you if you think you can do that. I'm asking you, do you want God's favor in your life. Let me tell you, God's desire is that you would have his favor. But it requires us understanding that although we're in charge, we're not in control. And that we can never lower the holiness bar that God has set. And God wants to give you incredible favor and blessing and power, something that you can't even fathom it might look like. Because that story that I just told you, let me just, it, I think it's obvious. Laura and Craig and I did not sit down at our kitchen table and we were planning on how to recruit a worship band. Okay, this is what we're gonna do. Craig, you're gonna walk into some music stores you're going to see a piece of paper of a high school student that's only going to play drums for us once, and that's going to lead to his dad, who knows another guy, who knows another guy, who knows another guy, who knows another guy, and it's going to recruit your entire worship band for years to come, and that's going to connect to more people, and that's going to connect to more people. We didn't put that on a piece of paper. We didn't plan it. That was God's hand, all God's hand. Do you want God's favor in your life? Reach for God's standard, and he will give it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I give you all the praise and all the glory for who you are, for the love that you have for us. And for the promises that you gave, not only to Abraham, but that you give to us. The promise that if we truly seek after you, if we look to you, if we long to find you and desire you and to be holy as you are holy, that you promise you can pour out, you can bestow, you can give out favor, incredible blessing in our life. Maybe there are some people here who they have forgotten that although they're in charge, they thought they were also in control. Remind them that you are holy and that there's no way we can hit that standard, but with Jesus, we have hope to be able to do it. We can reach the rim. We can get there if we have Jesus. Help us remember God. Maybe there's somebody in here that they've forgotten. Maybe they, they realize that they've lowered the bar. They've allowed something. They've allowed someone, they've allowed sin, a habit, something else to creep into their life that is less than holy. It's less than you, God. 
They've lowered the bar. They feel really good because they feel like they're dunking the basketball. But then they realize when they get into a real game, in a real situation, in that real pressure cooker of life, that they've just been fooling themselves. They've been dunking on an eight-foot rim, and they should have been reaching for the 10, the 15, the 20-foot to be holy like you're holy. But God, I just ask for the thing that we all desire, that we all want, we ask for your favor. We ask for your blessing. We ask for your guidance and your direction. We ask for your love to be imparted and flow through us in such a way that we experience it and we know it. So that we can pass it on, so that we can help and show others what it looks like to be holy as you are holy and see the amazing things that you can do as a result. We pray all of this and we ask all of this humbly but courageously in the name of Jesus. Amen.